0: Well, uh, as we get started, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And we are going to just dive right in um, to several more names of God. Several more names of God. I've heard a lot of feedback from people um, on this series. Um, Some names that uh, some of you have never really thought about, never heard about, never seen focused. And um, just a good opportunity for us to see the character of God, um, the names of God, bring that out. So this morning we'll have um, several descriptive names and then we'll have almost a nickname um, at the end as we look into this. So if you're in Matthew 9, you're, right, you're ready to go, but we need to pray before we get started. So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity this morning to open our Bibles and to um, hear from you. These are your words to us. You have preserved them over thousands of years so that they are accurate and they are true. They are powerful. And this morning, Lord, we ask you to, by your Spirit, work in our hearts and in our minds. What I pray for those this morning that don't have a relationship with you, they don't know you as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. What I pray even this morning that they might come to know you, that they might repent of their sins, turn from idols to um, the living God the true God who is um, shown to us in this word. So, Lord, we ask that you would um, help us to see what you have for us. Lord, there are many in this room that, that, really need, um, that really need to know that you are the God of all comfort. So I pray this morning that you would, um, that you would comfort them, encourage them, um, and then uh, help them to be able to use that comfort and that encouragement to then comfort and encourage others in their lives. Lord, we want to go from here more like your son, Jesus. So please transform us into his image. Make us more loving and more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we are in Matthew chapter 9, and here um, at the end of the chapter, verse 38 contains the name of God that we're going to, to look at. But here at the end of the chapter, Jesus has been doing um, good works uh, all throughout. Galilee area, and if you just kind of scan your Bible on the the pages before this, you'll see all the things that he has done, including um, restoring a little girl to life who had died. Um, Jesus has been using his power to heal. He heals two blind men earlier in the chapter. He heals a man that's unable to speak, and that leads us into the last few verses of Matthew chapter 9, which is actually basically an intro for Matthew chapter 10. So let's read starting in verse 35. Matthew nine thirty-five through the end of the chapter. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. If you then turn to, you don't have to right now, but if you look later at Luke chapter 10, verse 2, these same words are uttered by Jesus. And there's also, if you want to write this down, in John four thirty-five, 35, um, there is the same concept, the same idea of the harvest and the Lord gathering in the harvest through workers. So our first name this morning is, is God as the Lord of the Harvest. Lord of the Harvest. The The word for harvest here um, could mean the process of harvesting, like the season of harvesting. Um, it could talk about just the time. It is the time to harvest. Um, but clearly in this picture, Jesus is using a farming metaphor that, that his people would have understood, that his followers would have understood because they were surrounded by it. We are not so much familiar with farming metaphors and harvest metaphors, um, but Jesus would have just used a, a very common picture for them, and then just slightly changed it to talk about people. Talk about people as in need of harvest. In fact, um, the people are the crop that is to be harvested, that is to be brought in. He is speaking of people who are ripe for harvesting and being included in the kingdom that this passage says he's been preaching about. Um, And so there's a harvest. It's plentiful, Jesus says. But what's the problem? The problem is that there's few workers. There's a big harvest and there's not enough workers. So what's interesting to me as I was reading this, um, and then uh, seeing what some commentators had to say, is that actually, especially as Americans, especially as doers, as go-getters, um, we like to think of ourselves as active and activists, um, you would think then, or we would think, that there's not enough workers, let's go. <laughs> let's get a team and let's go. And actually what Jesus says is not necessarily to go, he actually commands them to to pray. The, the actual response here is, is pray. Now, is, of course, that is not to say we're not to, to get up and go, but the command here is actually to pray and to pray to the Lord of the harvest. So when we studied the word Lord at the beginning of the series, um, we said that some of the synonyms are master um, or owner, that, that the, dominant, the dominant theme, the dominant picture of a Lord is someone who owns, someone who is a master, So the picture here then is that that God is the master, the Lord. He owns the field. He owns the harvest. He owns the crop. And so it only makes sense that if you want the crop to be harvested, that you need to appeal to the master of the harvest, the one who owns the field. Jesus calls his disciples, and I think that he calls us, to pray for. For the harvest to be brought in by workers. So that we are to pray for workers. Now, if you have an ESV, verse 38 says they're to pray how? Earnestly. They're to pray earnestly. Okay? There's there's an, an urgency to that word. Um, there is a passion in that word. This is actually a different word for prayer than is commonly used. Um, and, and this word for prayer is is more of a, a, a begging Um, a pleading. It comes out of a deep sense of need. So it would have been a prayer um, that was more spontaneous and that came out of deep need in someone's life. And it's this kind of prayer that, um, that God is calling us to make. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. The laborers are needed, and we're to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send them out. In fact, it's an interesting word to see what send means. In this context, the word send is actually ekbalo. It's a a casting out, a throwing out. It's a thrusting into. So this this is not a patting on the head and sending off. This is a sending in that sense of the word, thrusting out into the harvest. Go harvest. Go get them. Pray that the Lord would send call out, thrust out workers into the field. And so the, the picture here is of this Lord, this master, this owner, gathering up workers. That the Lord is gathering up workers to send out into the harvest. Now, um, it's interesting to note that in this passage, Jesus goes, for, well, the, the writer Matthew goes from a shepherding metaphor um, he goes from the flock to the field. Um, he, he speaks of, he speaks of um, the sheep who were without a shepherd. They're harassed and helpless. When Jesus looks at the crowds, he has compassion on them. And the picture is of ripe, ready harvest that just needs to be brought in. Matthew 9's commission, this commission to send out, is an intro to Matthew 10's mission. So in Matthew 9, we see the commission. In Matthew 10, we actually see the mission. Um, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles on a short-term trip. He, they've been with him. He's equipped them. They've watched him preach and teach and heal. He, they watched him raise this young lady from the dead in chapter 9. And now he actually sends them out using the word laborer down in 1010 and in other places and speaks of going out on mission. So that these disciples who are called to pray to the Lord of the Harvest to send out workers are now the workers that are being sent out into the field of harvest, and I think that that works really well for us. Um, that sometimes we can um, have a, a, a kind of this dichotomy of missionaries go out into the harvest and we stay here, um, and I think that that we need to 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 kind of blend the two together. That yes. We send missionaries and we send laborers specially called and specially equipped to go out into cross-cultural harvests. But the harvest is all around us as well. In fact, we live in Southern California. We live in a melting pot with all kinds of refugees, all kinds um, of peoples from the nations all around us. There is cross-cultural missions, cross-cultural evangelism across your street. And so this is the picture. The picture is we are the laborers, and we are the prayers. There's a mix of the metaphors. So we are to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. It's good to know that God's a farmer, um, that God's a planter, and God knows how this works. God knows how the harvest works, He knows how it's supposed to come in. He's the master of the harvest. So you know that you note know that we're to pray earnestly. Um, but the master of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest, is not desperate. Um, he's not falling behind schedule. Um, he is ready to send out laborers, and we are to pray for him to send them out. So implications and response are actually really quite simple here. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. That is our call here, that we would pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest I wonder are your prayers earnest or are um, they routine are they a little bit boring let's just be honest or are your prayers earnest um, when was the last time that um, you prayed earnestly to the point of tears for the Lord to send out workers into his harvest we need to be not just routine prayers. Oh, it's the beginning of a meal. We're supposed to pray. But we need to be those who are praying earnestly that there is an urgency behind our prayers to send out workers, that we would plead with the Lord to send out workers into His harvest. And and maybe you're that worker. Maybe you are the worker. And so we ought to be open that when we pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field, that maybe, just maybe... He might send me. He might send me as a laborer into the harvest. Another implication, I, I think is just a helpful way of us um, to think about this, is to remember and don't forget. The, the book of Deuteronomy does this all the time. Moses tells the children of Israel, remember, don't forget, remember, don't forget. So remember and don't forget the fields you are in that the Lord wants to harvest. Sometimes we don't realize we're we're in the field. And there's harvesting needing to happen. Um, remember that that, that that Jesus changes the metaphor, but the people that need to be harvested are sheep that were, are without a shepherd. They're helpless. They're harassed. So even though Jesus changes the metaphor, um, the ones that are were seeking to be saved are helpless. They're being harassed. They have no shepherd. They don't know where to go. They don't know where to find food. And we are out in the fields. Do not forget the fields that you are in. And your fields look different. (laughs) Um, The field of the stay at home mom looks a lot different than the field of the businessman. But you're in the field. So pay attention to the field that you're in. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers and workers and don't ignore when he calls you into that harvest. I want to put this into practice. So um, we are a little dead today. There's a lot of, there's not a lot of energy this morning. So we're going to do something that's awkward and uncomfortable, okay? Great, you're all excited about that. We are going to actually just break into groups around where you're at and we're going to do this. So I figured, we're talking about praying earnestly to the Lord of the Harvest, why not do it right here? So I tell that to you to give you a few minutes to, you know, just get ready for this, gather up your courage, but I want to kind of just talk about this a little bit. I'm just going to give us three examples um, of missionaries that we support, that we need to be praying for um, as they're recommissioned or waiting to be commissioned into the Harvest. Fernando and Cindy Napolis for years and years and years worked down in central Mexico, out of Mexico City and Whiskey Lucan. Um, they have been back in the States for a while now and trying to figure out, Lord, what do you want us to do? Um, they had established um, a cultural center in their city. They had planted a church and raised up leaders to replace them. Um, and so they are now actually living in Fresno, California, and being redeployed uh, by their mission Uh, BMW, not the car maker, uh, but Biblical Ministries Worldwide. Um, And they are actually being redeployed in the Fresno area to reach Hispanics with the gospel. Still figuring out exactly how that looks, um, but they are making contacts, um, getting to know some of the pastors in the area, looking at the various ministries um, that are reaching one of uh, California's largest cities. So we need to pray for Fernando and Cindy that they would have their focus and their vision sharpened, that they would continue to make contacts with people, get to know the area, get to know the churches in the area, um, and begin to get back to work. Um, it's been a good time of rest. Uh their their son, some of their uh family is in Fresno, so they've been able to spend time with some of their grandkids as well. Um and now they are looking to be redeployed there in the Fresno area. So let's let's keep them in mind. Um Sean and Laura Boyd. We've been praying earnestly for them for a long time now, um, but they are finally, it seems, um, getting ready to move. Uh, they found uh, renters for their home in Illinois, um, and with a possibility of a rent-to-own situation, which would really buoy their finances and their stability. Um, and the goal is for the boys to move out to the San Diego area, And Sean recently told me um, that for the time that they are out here on the West Coast, that they'd like to be with us um, about two Sundays a month. So they'd like to come and and worship with us. You have been a faithful congregation in praying for them and in following them and contacting them, uh, whether it's on Facebook or via email or the times that Sean and or Laura have been here, Um, but they are still really, really, really wanting to be in Vienna and not here Um, Sean, especially, has just been feeling the weight of the migrant and refugee crisis in Europe and expressed even on Facebook in this last week, week and a half, how much he wants to be there in the middle of this um, and helping uh, TWR, their mission, to figure out how best to serve in Europe. So we need to pray for the boys. Hey, this guy's sitting right there. Um, Matt, wave wave your hand real quick. (laughs) Oh, Margie wants you to stand, but... (laughs) Um, Matt's, Matt's with us, and he's been with us for several weeks now, um, but Matt is in the process, and he's actually going to share with us next Sunday, so I don't want to steal all this thunder, but um, Matt's in the process of waiting and figuring out what God has um, for him because the United Kingdom is um, redoing the way they do visas, and so Matt's waiting and in communication with OM, his mission. Um, for whether or not he'll be going back to the UK to be a cook at Life Hope in Birmingham. And so we'll hear more from Matt next week. But we need to pray for clarity for Matt. We need to pray for um, more support for him to be able to raise. And now that he's come back right in the middle of his family moving and all these things, that that's um, not easy either. So here's what we're going to do. There's the three people, okay, the three groups, all right? Fernando and Cindy Napoli's. Um, are up in the top right. The Boyds are in the top left, Sean and Laura, and then Matt's right down there in the middle. So what I want you to do is I want you to include others around you. Don't get in a massive group, but get into small groups. Um, some of you may need to move. Some of you may need to stay right there. Some of you may need to look around and include other people with you, but we're just going to spend some time. Uh, I'm going to shut off my mic here in a minute, and we're just going to spend some time praying for these three groups. If you think of someone else that you'd like to pray for, or if you have something... Um, pertaining to the harvest and crops needing to be brought in, please include that and I'll come back up in a few minutes and we'll move on to the next name. Okay, so let's break up into groups and pray for these people. (laughs) Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for all the prayers going up to... You as Lord of the harvest, we ask that you would send out laborers into your harvest. We know that that, that is your heart and that that is your desire, that you are the shepherd um, to the sheep that are harassed and helpless. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for everyone for your uh, participation in that. I think it's a good change of pace, good thing to, to do from time to time. Um, but we need to move on to our next name or names So turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, which is actually where we're headed after the Names of God series, we'll be to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Father of mercies and God of all comfort, Father of mercies and God of all comfort, um, kind of two names for the price of one here uh, at the beginning of the book of 2 Corinthians, so uh, please get there. And I'm going to read verses 3 through 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Well, this is, um, as uh, one commentator called it, one of the most beautiful and beloved passages in the New Testament. This is a common um, passage that is read uh, for a eulogy or at a funeral or a memorial service because of the powerful way it talks about comfort. Um, one writer also said this, if Paul is the apostle of comfort within the New Testament, then 2 Corinthians is the letter of comfort and verses 3-7 through 7 is the paragraph of comfort. So as far as the uh, topic of comfort, this is kind of the the most concentrated section of the Bible talking about comfort. Now at the outset, um, it ought to be said that the way that we normally use comfort in English um, is not necessarily what's being meant here by the word comfort um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So often when I think of comfort, um, I'm thinking a hammock, um I'm thinking um I'm thinking air conditioning right especially this afternoon when it's supposed to be like 100 okay I'm thinking things that make me comfortable um and that's not necessarily um where we're headed here with comfort so we we need to be aware of that be aware of our own biases and how we think of the word comfort um, before we dive into this, it's actually interesting in verse 3, Paul starts off with a very Jewish sounding um, phrase, blessed be. Um, that's, actually in, uh, that's actually the way that the Jewish liturgy starts a lot of phrases. Um, the way that the Shema, uh, hear O Israel, the Lord is one. The way that is introduced in the synagogue is usually with a blessed be. Um, and then talks about our merciful father um, so if you'll you hear that in lots of synagogues. In Greek, this word is where we get the word eulogy from. Um, and this is blessed. So the God, in, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be blessed. Um, why? Because he's the Father of mercies and the God of our, all comfort. And then we get the discussion of how he goes about comforting us. Now, we'll get to this in January when we dive into this book. But in, in the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been suffering both physically and spiritually. Um, this church uh, at Corinth has not been kind to him in a lot of ways. Um, they have hurt him, and he has actually in turn, as he talks about later on in the book, hurt them um, in a painful way. And so the comfort that's mentioned here is out of very real circumstances, very real hurt and pain. Um, and this is why Paul starts the book off in this way. Um, most of, the, wor- most of the, the usages of the word comfort in the New Testament are actually in the book of Second Corinthians. And he continues to talk about it throughout the book. But we have two, two real titles here for God. The Father of Mercies. Uh, that, that word mercy, depending on your version, could be pity or compassion. Um, it's, it's often how Jesus sees the crowds. We just read this in Matthew 9, that he sees the crowds and he has compassion on them. He has this pity, um, that kind of is in his gut, right? You just feel for these people. Um, This is often what people cry out to Jesus for. They want, they need mercy. Uh, So back in Matthew 9, again, Jesus is walking um, through the town of Jericho and two blind men hear that Jesus is coming. And they just um, go as loud as they can yelling at the Son of David, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. They understand that they need His compassion, His mercy. In Luke 6, Jesus says that we are to be merciful as our Father is also merciful. So that throughout the Scriptures, God is described as a Father who has mercy. And you fathers know what it means to have mercy. Um, You know what it means to have missed out on an opportunity to have had mercy. Mercy. This is a fatherly aspect of God, that He is one who is merciful. Uh, Go back to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, and we can see this illustrated um, in one of the Psalms of David. Psalm 103, which is actually uh, what we sang this morning. Um, Bless the Lord, O my soul, comes from Psalm 103. Mercy is one of the primary attributes of God that's revealed even in Exodus 34. Um, as Yahweh, I am who I am, reveals his name and his nature to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. You remember that picture of putting Moses in the cleft of the rock and then God passes by and allows Moses to see the back end of his glory and he proclaims that he is Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious. And so Psalm 103 um, repeats that. Look at Psalm 103, verse 8. Remember when you see the Lord in all caps, like here it's Yahweh. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So it's this compassion, this mercy, this pity, um, this feeling for his children that describes God in this passage. And this is... Such good news for us um, that we don't just have a stern God in the heavens um, who judges, but we have a Father in the heavens who not only is in heaven, but is actually close to us, beside us, offering us mercy. He is the Father of mercies. He's also the God of all comfort. You notice that next phrase, the God of all comfort. That word comfort is can also be translated encouragement, exhortation, consolation. Um, so it is not it is not just um, like a like an arm around somebody. Um, it's not the you know, lame after you lose a game. It's okay. You know, it's not that's not the comfort we're talking about. That's that's not a very strong comfort. Um, I actually looked this up, and our English word for comfort comes from um, a French word that talks about... You see the fort at the end? Comfort. It talks about fortifying, strengthening. Um, That is what the picture of true comfort... True comfort strengthens. Um, It revives. It it, it solidifies for the future and in the present. Uh, One scholar said this, God's comfort strengthens weak knees... And sustains sagging spirits, so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. It's it's not merely to say a word um, or to put an arm around, but it is actually to to instill someone, to give somebody um, the opportunity to be courage, to have courage, to be encouraged, to cheer up even. So it's not this kind of lame. Just little relief that we feel. And it's not just comfort in the sense where now I feel comfortable. Because um, you look at verse... Um, uh, f- well, the end of verse 3 says, the, the, the words that we're studying, the names that we're studying, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions... Is there a period after that? No, there's a comma because it continues to go. So that... So there's a purpose... For the comfort. The comfort is not an end in itself. The comfort here is so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with what? With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God gives us comfort not to end here with me. But God gives us comfort so that we might learn how to comfort others. Which is a good reminder because often when we need comfort... Um, we, we, we kind of tend to sink into um, a pity party sometimes. And when the comfort comes to us, we make it end here. Um, and and it's, it's, we have to be really careful not to do that. True comfort um, lifts somebody up, turns them to God, and allows them, gives them courage to continue. Um, and so it is not just comfort to make us comfortable. One scholar said this... Um, God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. So God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. Um, this is so like God who equips us to do this. In fact, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort equips his children on how to comfort others. This is what a father does. He teaches his children how to not just receive but how to give. This is the God of all comfort. This is the God of all comfort who says in the mouth of Jesus, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the God who is like a shepherd. And in Psalm 23, David says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Um, The rod and the staff of the shepherd are not fuzzy. (laughs) They're not, um, they're not comforting as far as it goes. They're actually for instruction and correction. The rod and the staff are to keep the dumb sheep away from the cliff. The rod and the staff are for the sheep's good, even if the sheep doesn't know it. And so that kind of eliminates just the soft and cuddly comfort. Um, and, it, and it gives us the emboldening, strengthening comfort or encouragement um, that we need. And notice that he's not the God of comfort. He's the God of all comfort. He is the God who's in charge of comfort. He created a comfort. He knows how to comfort. In fact, he knows how to comfort in, verse 4, any affliction. So the afflictions that Paul lists at the end of 2 Corinthians 11 are vast and serious um, they are dangerous. They are um, soul dangerous, not just physically dangerous. And yet, God is the God of all comfort. And so He can, and He does, and He will comfort those who need it. It's interesting to me that as you look through um, both the Old and New Testament, that this word occurs a lot more than I thought it did. If you go to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is easily split into two sections, chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. The very first word of chapter 40 is comfort. In fact, it's repeated. Comfort, comfort my people. Um, And that's really necessary if you've just read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah because there's not a lot of comfortable stuff going on in the first 39 chapters. In fact, there's a lot of judgment going on. Um, There's a lot of harsh language for the enemies of Israel. There's actually a lot of harsh language for Judah and Israel themselves. And yet, chapter 40 begins with comfort. Comfort my people. You go to chapter 51 and God comforts his people at least three separate times in that chapter. Um, in the latter half of Isaiah, the suffering servant is provided who will bring comfort for his people. I think that it's, it's very helpful for us to think as, of, of comfort as something that we need, that we will need, but that keeps us going. It keeps us going. In fact, Romans 15.5 is really instructive here. So just turn back really quickly to the book of Romans. Romans 15.5. The words that Paul uses in combination here really help us to understand the thrust behind Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Romans 15.5. May the God of endurance... And encouragement, same word as comfort, grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is just after Romans 14, where the church at Rome was struggling with how to not judge each other and how to live with one another in various levels of conscience, what was allowed as far as eating meat and not causing a brother to stumble. And in that, Paul says that um, we are given the scriptures by a God of endurance and encouragement. So that comfort is given, um, that, that encouragement is given so that we might endure. So that we might keep going. So some implications and some response from us, the children of God, the people of God, it's very clear that this comfort is so that we might comfort others. So if we miss out on that opportunity, we have missed out on the purposes of God in comforting us. God comforts us so that we might be equipped and enabled to comfort others. And it's not some simplistic thing that, oh, I went through this so that I can now um, understand how other people that go through this. That that's, that's, that, that does happen and that's that's good. But what's actually done here is that comfort is given so that we may actively, proactively be on the lookout for those that we might be able to comfort. How many of you have needed comfort in 2015? You've needed an encouraging word. You've needed something. Yes. Yes, that's just this year, right? There's another year to come. And while we live on this broken earth, we will need comfort. And that's why we meet together. That's why we are here. So I hope that perhaps one way of putting this into practice as an implication or response is that what do you do during the greeting time? What is your purpose? That's good, you greet. What is the purpose of the greeting time? Is it just to say hi to somebody? Is it just to get some business done? (laughs) I gotta get this, I gotta give people stuff. I gotta go, I gotta talk to this person. I gotta get this person. What's the purpose of that time? What might you do with that time of greeting let me encourage all of us to rethink how we use the greeting time. Do you say hi to the same people every week? And that's not a bad thing, but are there others in the congregation that you need to get to know that perhaps you need to comfort and encourage? Maybe the fact that you greet them is encouraging. Wow, an old person said hi to me. Wow, a young person said hi to me. What an opportunity for us to greet and comfort and encourage one another during the greeting time. Um, so don't miss the chance to, to see how God comforts us and then to take notes for the future. Um, also, uh, it is just helpful for us to remember that we are to patiently endure, as 2 Corinthians 1, 6 says. So when we suffer, what do we pray for? When others are suffering, what do we pray for? I, I think that our default, I think that our default is to pray for deliverance. And I don't think that's a problem, but I think that if we only ever pray for deliverance, we're missing out on endurance. Um, That God has a useful purpose for suffering in our lives. We don't always see it. We may never see it, like Job. But that God has um, placed suffering into our lives for a purpose, and sometimes He does deliver us. And sometimes He gives us the comfort and the encouragement we need to endure through the suffering and through the trials. So let's, let's even think about that and how we pray. What do we pray for? Um, do we pray for suffering and things that are uncomfortable to end? That's good. But do we also pray for the courage to get through the suffering no matter what? Both of those, I think, are the biblical ways to pray and we need to have a better balance of those two things. The last name of God that we want to cover today is in the book of Hebrews. So turn further towards the end of your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. The word is majesty. The word is, is majesty. Um, this is actually probably more of a word that's familiar to people that live under some kind of monarchy. Um, our president is not normally referred to as his majesty. Okay. Um, in fact, our first president actually tried to change how he was addressed so that he wasn't addressed in that sort of way. But majesty, um, I looked it up because we don't, I don't think we normally use that word. Um, I think we use majestic sometimes if we're at a national park or we see a great sunset or something, um, but we don't often use this word. I, I was just thinking, I don't think like I've ever been called majestic or <laughs> it just was not something we, we say. So I looked it up in a in an English dictionary and it said majesty, regal. Lofty or stately dignity. That's probably why I haven't been called that. Um, imposing character or grandeur. Um, so the, the word in Greek actually has mega at the front of it. Okay. It's mega lesune. Okay. It's, it's got a mega. So for great. Um, and so it, it automatically has to do with greatness. But often in the Bible, both in that Greek word and then also in several Hebrew words that are translated majesty, it has to do with lofty, like high up, like actually physically high up. So that when we raise our eyes and we look to the stars, there's majesty. When we see the Milky Way, there's majesty. Or when you walk into a church or a cathedral, even the architecture causes you to what? To look up to to be, to be raised up, to look up in the lofty heights. One of the Hebrew words, ga'on, which is sometimes translated majesty, literally means height, ascent. And then it also secondarily means eminence or pride or majesty. So in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer starts off in verse 1, says, long ago... After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The picture simply is this. Jesus has ascended back into heaven. He has done his earthly work. He ascended in front of the disciples' eyes on the Mount of Olives. He went back up into heaven. He's preparing a place for us and he sits at the right hand of majesty. Um, of the king. Um, the God the Father here is pictured as, it's almost like a nickname, the right hand of the majesty on high. It's, it's a replacement name for saying um, God or one of his titles, and it's, it's almost like he, the nickname, he's majesty. Um, he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you go to chapter 8, verse 1, uh, this basically almost the same exact phrase is repeated, that Jesus sits at the right hand of, of the majesty on high. In the Old Testament, you'll see the word majesty um, not necessarily ascribed to God as a name, but ascribed to God and His works. Um, A lot of times the phrase in the ESV, splendor and majesty are His. Um, It's recognized. I think one of the places that we can go to understand the majesty of God is when God shows up at the end of Job. If you haven't read Job recently, you should read through. Um, We've got all this argument and bickering going on. Then Elihu takes over in chapter 33, 32. And then God shows up in chapter 38. Um, And you know, he's majestic because he shows up to Job and he says, hey, stand up. Okay. Get dressed. Okay. Prepare yourself like a man. I'm going to speak to you. And then God says, where were you when I where were you when I created this, when I made this? Can you, do you know how this works? How does this happen? Surely you know because you're great. And, and God's argument comes from his majestic position as the Lord of the universe. So that there are two things here. The, the one is that the Father here is referred to as majesty, but because Jesus is qualified to sit at his right hand, he is equivalent to the majesty on high because of his work. So that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is almost as if he is equivalent. In fact, the wording used for Jesus in verse 3 is radiance of his glory. He is upholding the universe by the word of his power. This one who sits next to the majesty on high is majestic himself. This is um, a call for us to to put God back up where he belongs, um, sometimes we get a little too familiar. Um, this is this is recognized in the book of Leviticus when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, got a little too familiar with what they were doing with God and God destroyed them right then and there. You don't mess around with the presence of God. We We don't walk in... God's not our homeboy. We don't have a secret handshake. He is the majesty on high. He's not Santa Claus throwing down gifts. He's not an old senile grandpa who just likes to pat you on the head. God is the majesty on high. The word that we might use is awe. When you stand before something majestic, you are necessarily awed. That is when we should use the word awesome. Um, when we are in, I mean, Iran uses this in the last, he's used this in lots of names of God, but when you are in Yosemite Valley, when you are in Zion or Bryce, when you are somewhere um, in a national park or somewhere out in nature and there is just something majestic, you are just in awe. I remember the first time I went to go to the Grand Canyon. Um, Amy and I went several years ago now and I'd never been there. And I don't know if anyone else thought this, but I was like, is that real? It's like a painting. It doesn't look. That's incredible. It's just big, really, really grand. And and, and you, you don't mess around when you're by the edge of the Grand Canyon because it's, it's a big thing. It is grand. But you know what? It's also a little bit dangerous. And I think that's the picture of the majesty on high. You don't mess with the majesty on high. You don't mess with the one on the throne. He is not to be trifled with. Um, there's this 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 picture throughout the scriptures that when we talk about God and His abode, when we talk about God and where He is, when we talk about heaven, we're talking up. We're, we're looking up. It's no wonder that the ancients thought the gods lived on the top of the mountains. Um, that's why the Greek gods lived on Mount Olympus, right? Because it's up. It's up in the heights. It's big. It's grand. It works for a home for beings such as them. How much more so... The God that we worship, the God who sent his own son to be a sacrifice for our sins, that he might bring us to himself, that he might qualify us to someday be able to stand in the presence of majesty. When God in his majestic greatness showed up to Moses on top of the mountain, he had to put Moses in a cleft of the rock. Why? So Moses doesn't get blown off the mountain. By the majesty of God, he literally puts him into a corner so he won't go anywhere, so that he won't die, so that he will be protected. Do you understand that someday when we have a body like Jesus' we won't need to be put in the cleft of the rock? That's why we need a new body. This one's deteriorating. Anybody noticed recently? This one's falling apart. I need a new one. And with that new one, I'll be able to stand in front of the majesty on high as Jesus now sits at his right hand. That's who we have to look forward to in heaven, is the majesty on high. So, I mean, implication, don't lose your awe of God. Let's not lose our awe of God. Um, respect for authority is is almost absent in our culture. Um, it's hard to transfer that to God when we don't practice that in um, In our society, but we need to remember who it is who sits on the throne. He is majestic. He is lofty. He is megalosune. He is big. This is who our God is. And this is why we have something to offer others. We don't have a regional deity, we don't have a local God. We serve the God of the universe. His Son holds the universe. Together, He upholds it by what? By the word. That's powerful. That's majestic. Um, My words aren't very powerful. I have to have a microphone for this little room. (laughs) The words of the God of the universe, the words of the majesty on high are what we ought to listen to. And guess what? He put them in a book for us so that we might have access to those very words. This is the God of that we worship. He is the Lord of the harvest, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, and he is majesty. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you today. We are not great. We are not awesome. You are great and you are awesome. You are majestic. And in your majesty, you still are a father who comes near to us, who comforts us in all our afflictions. Lord, I pray for those right now who really, really resonated with affliction language, with needing comfort and encouragement. Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged by being here today. Help us to be encouraging to our brothers and sisters. Help us to offer true comfort and not merely platitudes and cliches. And God, I pray that they would find their comfort most in the words that you have spoken to us that are collected in 66 books in the Bible. Father, we want to go from this place reminded that we go out into the harvest fields today, and especially tomorrow, I pray for those in their schools, and in their jobs, and in their homes, and neighborhoods, and communities. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of the field that we're in, that we would pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. To send out workers, Lord, as we go and we share a meal together and we just enjoy being here together, we pray for our brothers and sisters out in the the mountains getting ready to come home. We pray for safe travels for them, and we pray, Lord, that you would you would guide them and be with them. Um, Lord, we pray that you would be with um, Cookie and Myron this week as they drive out to Texas. Lord, we pray for the um, the emotions and for um, the the sadness of leaving and the looking forward to uh, what you have for them in Texas. God, we pray that you would guide and we pray that you would be the God of all comfort to them. Lord, guide us today. Give us a good time together as we eat together. In Jesus' name, amen.